Thank you for having me and for the opportunity that Betsy's provided for me to share with you from Daniel chapter 2 this morning. Just to tie in this chapter with the last chapter um, that you covered last week, in that chapter you saw how God is faithful to his people in a strange land when they're faithful to him. And from from that introduction to Daniel and his friends, we're now going to get more information about them and about the situation in which they're living in Babylon, and particularly about a, a challenge that arises as they are trying to remain faithful. Uh, I trust that you've all had a chance to read through the chapter and have been doing the study this week in your study guide, uh, but, so it's not foreign to you. But let's get started by taking a look at chapter 2. The chapter begins in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. The text identifies uh, this story as taking place in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But if you remember from last week, we understood from the first chapter that the process that Daniel and his friends went through of, of becoming uh, acclimatized, if you will, to Babylon, to becoming more Babylonian in their thinking, was a three-year process. And so how can we reconcile the fact that this now says in the second year when they were three years in this process? That's one of the questions that many interpreters of the Bible, of the book of Daniel, have had to wrestle with. And there are a couple of possible explanations. I'm not sure uh, that any one of them is the only answer, but let me offer a, a few possibilities. One is they didn't count years the same way we do. We tend to think of years in, as a full 12 months. But in many parts of the world, even today, if something starts in one year, continues through the next year and ends in the third year, that could be a three-year process. In other words, it might have only been 15 months long, but the fact that it spanned three years means you refer to it as, as a three-year episode or three-year event. The other possibility is that Nebuchadnezzar's first year was perhaps a year in which he was co-reigning with the with the previous king, and therefore was a year of ascendancy, and his reign only began to be counted from the following year, which, again, could allow for the, the reconciliation of the, the second year, as it refers to here. But what we read is that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and that the, his spirit is troubled, and his sleep left him. He couldn't get back to sleep after this dream. And it appears that um, the request that he has for his counselors at this point um, is not just tell me what my dream meant, but also tell me my dream. Um, does that strike you as a rather outrageous request from Nebuchadnezzar? I, I want you to tell me what my dream meant, but first tell me what my dream was. Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, some have suggested it may have been that he was now new in his reign. He had counselors who were left over from his father's reign. And so this was perhaps a way to clean house. Okay, if you're really good counselors, you should be able to do this for me. You should be able to tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation of the dream. Of course, the, the um, 
counselors protest that that's not fair, that that's not possible, uh, but it may be that he was simply testing them and, and opening up an opportunity to say, okay, well, if you're not really who you claim to be, then I don't need you as my counselors anymore. Um, the, what we find is that when we get to verse 4, uh, when we get the response of the counselors, it says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. When it says that, uh, that the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, the text actually switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. Now, Aramaic was simply another uh, a language of Babylon, it was a language that was, in many respects, a lingua franca, a language of, of trade, a language of the day. And we know that even in the New Testament, Aramaic was most likely the language that Jesus spoke. Although the New Testament is written in Greek, the spoken language at the time was primarily Aramaic. Greek was, a, was probably a more universal language throughout the Roman world at the time. But in Palestine, Aramaic would have been the, the common language of the day. But even back in Daniel's time, in Babylon, Aramaic was a common language. And so, interestingly, one of the few places that we have this in Scripture, the, the, the Hebrew text actually switches in verse 4 to Aramaic and continues that way all the way through chapter 7. So we have this odd little section of Old Testament Scripture, which is not written in Hebrew, but written in Aramaic. And it all begins when, they, when it says, they said to the king in Aramaic. And then everything else that follows through the next, through these six chapters is all written in Aramaic. What do we make of that? I would suggest that the fact that these chapters are set apart in a different language, at the very least, suggests to us that we should think of them as a unit. Chapters 2 through 7 in some sense, are a unit within the broader context of Daniel. And I'd like to come back to that in our final slide to talk a little bit about what the meaning of that might be. But for now, let's just note that at this point in the text, they actually switch the writing from one language to another and then continue on writing the text in Aramaic. What we find as we proceed through this uh, episode in verse 5 is that the king's response is to threaten his counselors with painful death and shame if they do not make known to him the dream and the interpretation. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Now, that's probably not um, just a figure of speech. <laughs> there are known, uh, from history we know that there were ways that people, uh, rulers particularly, tore others limb from limb. They had methods for doing such things. And so this was no idle threat, and it certainly was not perceived by the counselors as an idle threat. They took it very seriously. Um, it's, it suggests that Nebuchadnezzar is a man of great power, perhaps a man of, of some violence, uh, a man not to be trifled with. 
And he's getting a message across to his counselors, again, his advisors, um, that, that they are under scrutiny and they are under threat. I tried to think, you know, to whom would we compare counselors like this today? You know, we might think the president and his cabinet. Um, but I think it would be more like the, the White House staff. <laughs> Those kind of people who would, be, who would have the ear of the president. In this case, those who would have the ear of the king, those to whom he would look for advice, those to whom he would take counsel from. And in a, in a context in which the spiritual leaders were seen as, in many ways, those who, who had great influence on the king, they were, they were people that the king would trust and people he would look to for direction, for confirmation of what he was wanting to do, um, and, and confirmation that what he was going to do was going to succeed. So they were people who had very high positions within the society and within the, the court, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar. And in that sense, they, they had a very important function to play. Um, so it's not terribly surprising if Nebuchadnezzar was wanting to perhaps clean house that he would make such a demand of these people. Okay, let me see. You're supposed to be the ones who, who can understand and interpret what the gods are telling me. Let's see how well you know your, your gods. Can you really tell me what the gods told me? I mean, if you have this direct relationship with the gods, then you should be able to do that, right? You should be able to tell me the same thing that they told me. So tell me the dream. That's, that's kind of the logic that I see being developed here. Um, in that sense, I would suggest that his request is not as outrageous as the counselors suggested it was. Uh, they answered a second time in verse 7, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar's response, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me. Um, excuse me, I just lost my place. Um, Till the times, the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. I think the, the admission of the counselors in verse 10 uh, is a telling one. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Chaldean was another word for soothsayer or, or an interpreter of, of dreams. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They're acknowledging we don't have this special connection to the gods. You, you think we should be able to do this, but only the gods can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, okay, but, but you're somehow connected to the gods, right? You understand the gods. You're the ones who interpret the gods for me. Well, if, if that's true, then you should have an in with them and you should be able to tell me, in fact, what I dreamed. So their admission um, exposes them 
as to, to both them and their gods being ineffective in what the king was asking them to do. We see then that the king is a man of his word and he proceeds to order the destruction of all of his counselors. Again, a, a harsh response by the king, um, not at all unbelievable in what we know of ancient kings, um, certainly in keeping with the kind of power that was wielded by the kings and some of the brutalities that we know from history that uh, some of the ancient kings committed. Um, but it, it does mean that now Daniel comes into the story because Daniel and his friends are now threatened along with all of the rest of the king's advisors. And so the story brings that to our attention. And Daniel is informed when the, the captain of the king's guard, Arioch, in verse 14, goes out to carry out the king's order and informs Daniel that this is what the king has ordered and therefore he and his friends are going to die. Um, notice Daniel's response to him. Uh, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Um, let me back up, verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion or with wisdom and tact, as some translations say. To, to Arioch, the captain of the guard, and, and then he asked him this question, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. I think with, with Daniel's response here, we see actually a model response for dealing with difficult people. He spoke to the king's commander with wisdom and tact, he asked a question to get clarification. And then the last thing he did is he requested time so that he and his friends could pray. Um, Daniel then solicits the, the, the prayer support of his friends. And together they pray that God will, will answer this, this, this quest, question that the king has raised. What was my dream and what did it mean? I don't know if you've had difficult people in your life that you've had to deal with. Um, I have had that experience a number of years ago where I had a, um, a very difficult person. Uh, we were living in South Africa, as Betsy mentioned, a difficult person to whom I, uh, under whom I worked in the workplace. And I just found that as I read through this response of Daniel, it struck me that this was the type of response that generally worked best approach the person with tact and wisdom, ask questions to clarify, make sure I understood what the person really wanted, and then ask for time. <laughs> Please give me some time to pray about this, to think about it, to work on this. You know, uh, let, me, let me see if I can do what you've asked me to do. And I think it's instructive that Daniel takes that approach even though what the king has asked seems unreasonable to everybody else. So it's not based on the, the fact that the king asked something that was reasonable. Even when he asked something unreasonable, Daniel took this approach to responding to him. As we see, the response pays dividends. 
In verses 17 to 19, we see that Daniel and his friends did pray. Uh, Verse 17 and 18, and then in verse 19, we read, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And in the verses that follow, we have Daniel's praise to God. And I'd like to just highlight the, the nature of that praise. Notice what he says. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. It's wisdom and might or wisdom and power. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. You see what, he, what Daniel is doing here. First, he describes what God is like. God is the one who has wisdom and power. And then he says, he does these things, as I've highlighted on the slide there. He changes. He deposes. He gives wisdom and knowledge. He reveals. He knows. All of this is Daniel describing what God is like. This is the way God is. These are the things God typically does. But then he follows that by, by applying that to his own situation. When he says in the latter verses here, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And the statements he makes there largely parallel what he had just said God is like. God changes, God deposes, God gives wisdom and knowledge, God reveals, God knows. God, you have done those things for us. And I think that that what we see here is a, a fairly typical pattern of praise as it's understood in the Old Testament. That praise is not just, God, I praise you for doing this good thing for me. That's part of it. But it, it, it starts with saying, God, this is what you are like. We know you to be this kind of God, regardless of whether you answered our prayer. God is still all of those things. The fact that he answered the prayer and did reveal to Daniel what the dream was, was just a, a further confirmation that these are the things that God is like. And so even if Daniel could not have, even if Daniel had not received the interpretation of the dream, he could have still praised God because, God, this is what you are like. You still are the one who holds all wisdom and power. So I think, he, I think this uh, particular passage gives us a good example of what praise can look like, even, in our, even for ourselves. The text follows on with Daniel going back to the king and saying to the king, um, I'm here to tell you the dream and the interpretation of it. Um, notice that Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, seems to take some credit for having found this man who can interpret the dream. Um, he wants to perhaps look good in the king's eyes. Uh, Daniel sets the record straight uh, when, when, Daniel, when the king asks uh, Daniel whether he's able to make known the dream. Daniel, in verse 27, answered, answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. 
that sounds like it's not going very well, right? <laughs> but then he, he continues, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter, dura- latter days. So Daniel clearly gives God the credit for the interpretation of the dream. He doesn't say it's by my power, it's by my wisdom. It's all because God has done this. And, and God has done it, King Nebuchadnezzar, not because you asked for it, not because you asked us to give you the, the, the dream and its interpretation, but he's done it because he chose to reveal something to you. That's why he's done this. You see, God is the one who's acting. It's not King Nebuchadnezzar demanding that gets the results. It's because God chose to reveal something to the king. As we read the, in the dream itself, the dream concerns a statue made of four sections, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay in the bottom, uh, with materials of descending value that is eventually struck and destroyed by a large rock that grows into a mountain. And then Daniel gives him the interpretation of the dream. The head of gold on the statue is Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon. The, the silver chest is the kingdom that will come after him. The bronze is another kingdom that will come after that. The, the legs and feet of, of iron and clay are yet another kingdom. And so we have these four kingdoms. And as I've noted here, there's been some discussion, some debate about um, which kingdoms are represented by the different sections of the statue. Um, the, the two basic uh, options are that either it's referring to the kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, as some have suggested, or some people lump Media and Persia together as one and make that the second, and then Greece and Rome. Um, for King Nebuchadnezzar, it really didn't matter. <laughs> and so I think if we get sidetracked on that question, we really miss the point of the text. The text is trying to say, God has a plan. And, Babel, and Nebuchadnezzar, you are part of that plan. But there are others coming after you. And eventually, God's kingdom is the one that will destroy all the others and will be established and will be itself indestructible. And so I think rather than, get, rather than getting caught up in how do we allocate the different parts of the statue to different kingdoms, our focus needs to be on the fact that God is the one who's given Nebuchadnezzar this understanding, this, this vision, this dream, so that he can understand that he's a part of God's plan, that there are others that are part of God's plan, but ultimately... God is the one who is sovereign and in control. And his kingdom will be the final kingdom uh, to which all will answer. In the final chapters of, of, uh, final verses rather of chapter two, beginning in in verse 46, we see the king's response. Um, It is a a response of humiliation. Uh, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. For a king to do something like that is truly 
remarkable. I mean, that is, that is showing a, a tremendous amount of honor to Daniel and his God that the king would actually prostrate, prostrate himself in order to show that kind of worship to Daniel and to his God. Um, he declares God's praise. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Again, it's not just Daniel. that he, He's not just giving credit to Daniel, but he's giving primary credit to Daniel's God. Picking up on what Daniel had said, remember? Daniel said, it's not me, king. God's the only one that can reveal this. And so, Daniel, so Nebuchadnezzar at the end picks up on that and says, okay, well then God deserves the praise. God deserves the credit for having revealed this mystery. He rewards Daniel uh, by giving him uh, gifts and a high position. And as a result of it, Daniel also asks that his friends uh, are given high positions as well. And that is granted to them. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. So we come to the end of the chapter, and we have uh, have a complete story here, if you will. I, I think we can summarize it on the next slide. Um, I've laid it out in this way because I think we it helps us see some of the parallels here. The king threatens death to all the wise men. Daniel and his friends pray. God reveals the dream and its meaning, which Daniel then reveals to the king. The king declares God's praise, and the king honors Daniel and his friends. You see the, the correspondence between Daniel and his friends praying to God and the king praising God. And the king threatening death to everyone. And then at the end, the king honoring Daniel and his friends and sparing everyone. That goes unsaid. Nothing is said about the fact that, that the king does not carry through on his threat to destroy, to, to pull them all limb from limb and, and make their houses piles of rubble. But that's the obvious implication is that that doesn't happen because the king has now received what he asked for. I think the, the structure here is reflective of what we find often in the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew poetry, the, the books of the, of the Old Testament, and that is a certain way of, of arranging the material so that the focal point is right there in the middle. God reveals the dream and its meaning. That's what this whole story is really boiling down to. God is the one who's able to reveal the dream and its meaning, and the content of that dream and its meaning is that God is the one who's in control. So let's consider, what does this mean for the post-exilic community, assuming the book of Daniel is written primarily to those who are now, after the exile, heading back to, to the, the land of Israel? Well, I would say it's a couple things here. God is in control. He's the one who sets up kingdoms and he's the one who brings them down. And he's the one whose kingdom will ultimately be the indestructible kingdom described by that rock that grows into a mountain. 
God takes care of his people. Daniel and his friends pray, and God responds. God listens to their prayers. He answers their prayers. He spares them and their non-Jewish fellow advisors. God doesn't just spare the, Christ, the, 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 the believers. He spares all those, all those pagan astrologers as well. Because of the influence of Daniel and his friends. Because God hears their prayers. They and all the others benefit from that. I think Daniel serves as a model for dealing with difficult people, as I've suggested. Um, Wisdom and tact, that's the place to start. Asking questions for clarification. Not reacting to the threats. Daniel didn't seem to be too phased by the threat. He didn't say, oh no, quick, let me go and hide. Or, you know, let me run away. It was rather, okay, let me make sure I got this right. Let me uh, ask a few questions and then give me a little bit of time, please. We've got this. God's got this. God responds to the earnest prayer and faith of, of his followers. And then finally, human kingdoms will rise and fall, but God's kingdom is eternal. For the post-exilic community, those were important things for them to hear. They were living in a very chaotic situation. They were not in control of their destiny in in the land of Palestine. They were very much uh, living at at the... they, They were under the influence and control of the foreign powers who were in ascendancy, and, and that changed from time to time. So their, their lives, their society, their, even their city was subject to the whims of others. And yet God says in the midst of that, I'm in control. I take care of my people. I think if we consider what the message is for us today, it's those same points and maybe just with some questions. For us, which aspects of our lives seem to be chaotic or out of control? Are there areas there where we can look to God who is in control and recognize that God has the authority, God has the power, God has the wisdom to make a difference even in are moments of chaos. Or maybe it's more than a moment. Maybe it's hours, weeks, months, years of chaos. Because it happens. How is God taking care of us? And I, I really think when we read the book of Daniel, you know, we, we read in Daniel, we read many stories of dramatic rescues, this being one of them. We've got a couple more coming in the book as we'll see. And yet, if we think that's the only way God cares for his people, then we also need to read the book of Job with the book of Daniel. Because God cares for Job in a much different way from the way he cares for Daniel and his friends. And both of those are examples of God's care for his people, but with very different outcomes. Um, Jenny and I have friends, dear, dear Christian friends who have been through very, very difficult times 
you know, a, a couple that we know who've given their lives to missions that, that currently serve as the director of a, of a U.S.-based mission agency but lived overseas for many years. And I think it was just about a year ago, their 30-year-old son, single son, had an accident on a motorcycle and was killed. You know, what do you say in, in the midst of that? How is God taking care of his people? And so while in Daniel we read about these dramatic rescues, I, do, I think we need to be careful that we don't slip into the line of thinking that says, okay, well, if we, if we pray earnestly enough, if we believe strong enough, then God will do that same thing for me. He may. But he may also do like he did with Job and say, well, okay, I've got some other things in store for you. I want to I wanna give you some challenges in your life to, uh, to help you grow. How can we follow Daniel's example of dealing with difficult people? Can you think of difficult people in your own life with whom wisdom and tact might be a, and, and questions of clarification might be a good approach? I think most of us can identify with one or two difficult people that, we've, that we have to deal with from time to time. What in your life requires earnest prayer and faith? Notice Daniel's response. He expected to be able to give the king what he asked for, even before he had prayed. The prayer was so that God would reveal it to them so that he could do that, but he asked for the time from the king so that they could give him the response that he was asking for. That took a lot of faith. He wasn't just saying, well, let me, let me pray and see if God wants this. He was saying, you know, King, I think God's going to give you the answer, but, but I just need some time to pray it through. And so that response of prayer and faith, are there issues in our own lives that require that same kind of response of earnest prayer and faith? And then finally, how can we live first and foremost as citizens of God's kingdom? Daniel was in Babylon. He lived to see the, at least the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. But for him, those weren't his final destiny. For him, that wasn't, those weren't the kingdoms to which he primarily belonged. He belonged to God's kingdom. And so the question is for us, how do we live as primarily, or first of all, not as first of all Americans, not as, all, not as first of all Glendorians or whatever other city we live in here, but how do we live first and foremost as citizens of God's kingdom? Not ignoring those other political affiliations or, or the fact that we live in this particular place. Certainly we were called to be a part of our community and to and to do the kinds of things Daniel was doing in his community. But do we keep that perspective that, that although I may have an allegiance here, it's secondary to my allegiance to God and the kingdom that he's establishing? The last slide I've given you, the Aramaic section of Daniel, which is chapters two through seven. Again, in an outline form that I think, in my mind, shows the parallels in these six chapters. So in the, in the chapter we've just looked at, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a four-part statue and the rock that destroys it. Skip down all the way to the bottom. Daniel's dream of the four beasts and the victorious son of man. You see the parallel there? 
a, a four-part dream overcome by where the kingdoms of the world are overcome by God. Move into the, in, the next level. Daniel's friends trial by fire. That's next week. But skip down to the parallel. Daniel's trial in the lion's den. Obvious parallel there between chapters 3 and chapter 6. And then right in the middle, the pride, humiliation, and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and the pride and destruction of Belshazzar in chapter 5. Remember, Belshazzar was the one who took it upon himself to use all the, the utensils from the, the temple in Jerusalem as his drinking uh, goblets and was having his banquet with all of those gold and silver utensils that had come from the temple when God pronounced his judgment upon him with the writing on the wall. I, I think these six chapters do form a unit, and obviously you'll explore the details of them in the weeks ahead. But I think they point to what's in the middle there, and that is that pride and humiliation go hand in hand. And that we, as God's people, have an obligation to humble ourselves before God and recognize his power and his sovereignty in our lives. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word and for this brief glimpse of of what you've communicated to us through the book of Daniel. We recognize that to you belong all wisdom and power that you are the sovereign Lord, the God, of, the God of all, the ruler over all. And so we acknowledge that this morning and we worship you as our God. We ask that you would continue to guide in the conversations and discussions that follow this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name for your honor and glory. Amen.